Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, thanks everybody. It's my pleasure today to introduce Kate Van Dor, who's come over to us from, well, not very far away from the Griffith Law School, and she's going to be talking to us about the emergence of orphan trafficking, focusing especially on some Asian cases, I think. I'm going to just hand straight over to Kate to get going. So Kate, over to you. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. I was just saying to Larry, I actually have a degree in Asian studies from this university. I did it as a double with my law degree. And I think, David, you taught me for one of my courses many, many years ago. But actually, Elena and I went through our law degrees together. Yes, so we know each other quite well. I think my interest in Asia originally was sparked because I was very interested in Japanese language and started here doing the Japanese language major, but then moved fairly quickly once I realised law and Japanese were quite tricky to do together over to the Development Studies major at the time, which we offered at the time, and found some real value there. So very happy to be here and very lucky at the moment to be being mentored by Caitlin, who I think somehow forced Ian to no, no, invite me. <laughs> So anyway, it's really good to see the different alignments between our various pieces of work. So today I'm talking about orphanage trafficking and this is something I've been working on. It was the topic of my PhD. It's something I've been working on quite a lot since about 2014, 2015. And it's come a long way since then. I thought what I'd do is actually do a bit of a grounding piece to start with. This isn't a form of trafficking that people are very familiar with. Notwithstanding that people aren't familiar with trafficking generally, it's a bit of a buzzword that's thrown around and often people don't realise the legal implications of what it actually is. In relation to orphanage trafficking then, orphanage trafficking is a form of trafficking that occurs to recruit children into orphanages. So I thought I'd just start with a few facts about the global context. And it's a common misnomer that orphanages have been abolished kind of worldwide, or at least in all developed countries. But there are five and a half million children that live in residential care internationally, which is quite a high number. And many of them are in what we would call, you know, global south or developing nations. And many of those, of course, are located within the Asian region. Save the Children did some research that showed that over 80% of those children residing in orphanages have at least one or both parents alive that could care for them if they were supported. And so it begs the question, why are so many children in orphanages if they've got parents who are alive, particularly because we usually understand children in orphanages to be orphans. So interesting fact is that the definition of orphan that UNICEF and that is used internationally is only that one parent has passed away, not that both parents have passed away. And that gets used for all sorts of NGO programming, government programming, etc. So there is a huge difference between the number of orphans, double orphans internationally, the number of single orphans, or what are referred to as orphans under the NGO kind of policies, and how many children are actually living in orphanages. And there's very little correlation between those. So there's about, you'll see, if you do any Googling on orphans, many faith groups will tell you there's like 145 million orphans in the world. That would fall under that single orphan definition. But the 5.5 million children that are living in orphanages aren't necessarily reflected in those numbers because many of them have both parents alive who are placing them into residential care for all sorts of reasons. Accessing education is a huge one in many countries or a better standard of living. 
And of course, then we have the fact that we've got a great depth of research that says that orphanage care harms children. And we know this, of course, in this country. We've moved away from residential care quite a long time ago because of that harm and that research. And we, of course, have had a royal commission on some forms of harm that are caused to children in institutional care. So we know all of this, and yet, for some reason, Australians flock to support orphanages in other countries, both financially and via volunteering. And that leads to this little tricky problem that I've been looking at, which is that in some countries an orphanage industry has emerged and to take advantage of that foreign funding and people coming to volunteer because there's money involved there too. And that has led to children being recruited or trafficked into orphanages for a purpose of profit. So I thought just to give you some context, the starting screen I had actually, this is an orphanage in Nepal. I also am a co-founder of an NGO that works in Nepal, India and Uganda on this issue. And this was an orphanage with 300 kids and I'm going to show you the conditions. So there's the 300 kids. Um, these kids have been subject to all sorts of different abuses. It's a faith-based orphanage, so they take volunteers predominantly from Korea, actually, who come over and volunteer with these kids, pay to do so, and then often will send large amounts of money. And the conditions these kids are living in are this. So that top left-hand corner is the kitchen for those 300 children. The top right is the toilet, and you can see there's many children that are in really dire straits, very disabled, no appropriate care being given. And on the face of that, you would think that that orphanage is very poorly run and poorly resourced. But in fact, this is a very well-resourced orphanage. It has a lot of money flowing into it. And this is where the director lives. The children helped build that house and help maintain the farm and the grounds around it. They run a local bakery and they've been implicated in wildlife trafficking and all sorts of things. I suppose I'm just showing you this just so you get a little bit of an idea of what these kids are experiencing. One of the things we often see in these orphanages is that the conditions are kept in a dire kind of way and the children are often malnourished and in need of medical care and that's often done to elicit more sympathy, more money more volunteers into the place but the director in this case very wealthy but limited action has been taken against that director even though these offences have been very clearly outlined so this is a problem I'm interested in because I've got some personal context but also because I'm a lawyer and I'm like well what's going on here so I started looking at this issue as part of my PhD and I came up with this kind of definition of what orphanage trafficking is and that's what is now being used internationally is the definition of orphanage trafficking, the recruitment or transfer of children to residential care institutions for a purpose of exploitation and profit. It sounds a little bit legalistic because it is, it mirrors what the International Convention says um, trafficking is, so that's why I'm using particular words there, but it is a definition that has been picked up and is now being used by various governments around the world and the UN. It usually occurs in lower and middle income countries, two of which I'm going to look at briefly today. Today, Nepal and Cambodia and it largely occurs where child protection services have been privatized 
Governments have largely abrogated their responsibility onto NGOs and then they're under-regulated and any minimum standards or compliance mechanisms for what we call gatekeeping, so how children are admitted into care, are not enforced or regulated. And most of these countries have 90-plus percent of their child protection services being foreign-funded. So the primary drivers, we think, for orphanage trafficking are that foreign funding and orphanage tourism. So orphanage tourism is, I've used someone else's definition there, but it's essentially where people go on a holiday and they include donating to an orphanage, visiting an orphanage. I think everyone in this room is probably very well-travelled and you may have even been offered an orphanage tour as part of a trip to Indonesia or Bali is quite common or you see signs around in cafes and things saying you know come and visit our happy orphans you know spend some time some money you go along they perform for you you make a donation lots of people take over you know lots of suitcases and things of goods and all sorts of things so that's what we refer to as orphanage tourism and it's a major contributor to what's happening here with children being recruited into care so this wasn't a thing officially until about 2017, formally. I started doing my PhD on it in 2015, and I thought it was a problem because I had this experience in my own organisation, and I started talking to NGOs. What did they think was causing children to be recruited? Why were children being recruited into care? And what could be done about it? And the NGOs I spoke with said, we think it's a form of trafficking, but no one will recognise it as such. The big ticket item is to get it into the United States Trafficking in Persons Report, which the US uses, for better or worse, as a bit of a diplomatic lever. So they do an annual report every year on how countries are responding to trafficking, and they grade countries. This is highly topical <laughs> and very questionable, but this is what they do. They grade countries into tiers and then they use that as a diplomatic lever to you know, trade sanctions or whatever if they fall below a certain tier. So the NGOs I was speaking with, particularly in Nepal, were saying we'd love to get it into that report because if it gets into that report, the Nepali government will sit up and take notice because they need some form of international recognition of this happening. So I thought that was a great topic for a PhD, so that's why I decided to do my PhD on it. We started working on that kind of idea that this should be recognised internationally as a form of trafficking, and if it can be, then we can leverage off all sorts of things. In 2017, the Australian government decided to conduct a modern slavery inquiry, and that was an inquiry into whether Australia should have a modern slavery act, very similar to the United Kingdom, who had enacted one in 2015. And as part of that, I'd been working quite extensively with Senator Linda Reynolds, who has since become famous for other reasons, but was very interested in topics of modern slavery and had come across this issue of orphanage tourism driving recruitment into children's homes on a Save the Children trip in Cambodia. And when she went on that trip, she asked one of the children who had since grown up a care leaver, what is it that Australia can do to help kids in your situation? And she said to them, 
tell Australians to stop coming to orphanages, tell Australians to stop giving money to orphanages. So Linda Reynolds was very interested in this problem and we started working together and when this one slavery inquiry came about, we saw it as a great opportunity to do a bit of lobbying and get some exposure to the issue. We did that and we ended up with a whole chapter in the final report of that inquiry, which is called the Hidden in Plain Sight Report, and Chapter 8 was all about orphanage trafficking and particularly how Australia contributes to that across the southeast region. And Julie Bishop, as part of that, announced a new campaign aimed at not entirely banning orphanage tourism but essentially dissuading people from going to orphanages. So even now, if you go to the Smart Traveller site, there's a statement on volunteering in orphanages there. So if people go and do some research, they find that it's not a great thing to be involved in. The outcome of the inquiry was that the committee recommended that the Australian government introduce offences and penalties for anyone involved in tourist visits to orphanages. That didn't eventuate in the Act, unsurprisingly, because it was quite a gung-ho kind of recommendation. But it did end up being included in the Modern Slavery Act, and the result of that is that any Australian businesses, whether they're funding orphanages or they're facilitating trips overseas, needed to be cognizant of that, and they have to take steps to mitigate their participation in that because it's a form of trafficking and modern slavery. So just globally then, before we get to Cambodia, because this all kind of trickles on. We then started using some of what had happened in Australia to talk to the United States, and down the bottom hand corner there, that blue piece, in 2017, the United States Trafficking Persons Report for the first time recognised this form of trafficking in its Nepal narrative. And in 2018, they did a whole special section on it in the report, which has enabled a whole series of dominoes to kind of flow. So there's, I think that picture of me is at the Dutch Parliament speaking about orphanage tourism and how the Dutch Parliament should move to curb it. But the biggest piece we had done just before COVID hit was we had a resolution adopted by the General Assembly in relation to the rights of the child that specifically stipulates that countries need to take appropriate measures to regard this as a form of trafficking and to protect children from it. So then COVID hit and we've kind of been in this standstill of what next? We can't go anywhere, we can't do anything. So we've developed this other project on the side. There's an email just there to the right and that's essentially from a reintegration officer who was writing to me from Nepal so a reintegration officer is someone who will go and participate in the closure of an orphanage, get assigned a certain number of children, and then go and trace and track their family and reintegrate them. And he was saying in that one that there's now, because of all of this international prominence and it's in the tip report, the local law enforcement is starting to charge and prosecute this as trafficking. So we're taking these as markers that things are starting to happen and we're starting to get some leverage here. But there remain big gaps. So now I get to the development of this project. There's huge challenges with looking at this as an offence because orphanages are regarded generally as a child protection intervention. We generally regard you know, children who are in orphanages as being very vulnerable. They're in need of assistance and support and that's why they're placed in orphanages to start with. So to cast then an orphanage as a site of modern slavery or trafficking is a very distinct shift in mindset for people and also for people to get their heads around the fact that perhaps they've been thinking they've been helping children and 
perhaps they've been participating in actually harming children is a really big step. That's our first hurdle we've got to counter when we're working in this area. But then we have a general lack of awareness across law enforcement, child protection, victims, families about what's going on. We have governments that are very under-resourced and who have certainly essentially privatise their child protection systems because of lack of resources and then don't have enough resources even to enforce or the mechanisms they do have in place. And we have long histories of corruption and in relation to this particular issue, of course, the facilitation of inter-country adoption, which has had a very rocky road and has been referred to as a trafficking mechanism for a very long time. So all of these kind of intersections and challenges that are going on. So we decided that we would put in for this grant. It's UBS Optimus Foundation. The UBS Optimus Foundation is a branch of the UBS Bank. It's a philanthropic organisation and they give grants that are catalytic in changing the spaces around what happens with children, also in the environment. There's a few different things that they do. But they've been very prevalent in this area in funding NGOs who are doing the -the on-the-ground work, so I thought they might be interested in funding something that's looking a little bit more of a meta view. So we're focusing in this project on Nepal, Cambodia and Uganda. When we put the grant in, originally COVID wasn't a thing, so we thought we'd be spending time in each of these countries and doing all sorts of things, but as it turned out, we spent last year doing a desk-based review of the legal policy and procedural frameworks, and now we're moving on into stage two, but with travel very limited. So essentially what we're doing with this grant, we chose Nepal, Cambodia and Uganda because these four indicators are present there. We've seen there's a large number of children who are institutionalised inappropriately, which would mean they don't actually meet a criteria for institutionalisation. And yet when deinstitutionalisation tries to happen or NGOs try to push deinstitutionalisation, there's huge resistance to it. It's because there's so much money involved in these orphanages. We've had lots and lots of reports of child exploitation happening, huge numbers of unregistered care facilities. So in Nepal and Cambodia and Uganda, you'd have less than 2 or 3% of orphanages actually registered properly in the country. And the numbers of orphanages in tourist destinations is really high, which doesn't correlate with vulnerability for children in those areas. So that's why we selected those three countries. And we did the desk-based review, and what we found was actually quite interesting. So Cambodia has one main law there. It already recognises these issues as offences. They're just not being prosecuted. So it's got the potential there to be prosecuted, and I'll talk a bit about what we're going to do about that next. But it was really interesting to see how explicitly their legal framework already anticipated this, mostly in relation to intercountry adoption, but it's still anticipated it. In Nepal, we had a bit of a different story. We've got a couple of different acts related to it, but Nepal has just signed what's called the Palomo Protocol, which is the protocol on trafficking of women and children. It's the internationally recognised protocol. And we imagine in the next two years they will completely rehaul their trafficking framework, which will change all of this. So Nepal is a jurisdiction where orphanage trafficking is currently being prosecuted under the Human Trafficking and Transportation Act. 
it's categorised as a form of transportation, which is not recognised in international law or any other jurisdiction. The Act is very, very widely framed and it's easy to have a trafficking act interpreted through that so that's why it's being prosecuted there but we're interested to see what happens once they overhaul it and accord their definition with the international law and so for the moment we're putting Nepal to one side in terms of this project and we're focusing only on Cambodia and in Cambodia we're up to the stage where we've just got ethics approval and we're about to interview law enforcement government agencies, judiciary and prosecutors. And the reason we're doing that is to test how the framework works in action because we know Cambodia has the framework there to prosecute this already but we're not seeing the prosecutions come through. So what's going wrong there? Is it that they're not being charged correctly at the start? Is it that there's just not enough awareness of what the issues are by law enforcement? Is it that NGOs don't have the awareness so when they go to close an orphanage they don't refer to law enforcement so then that prosecution process doesn't happen. Where are the holes and how can we fill them? So we're doing those interviews in the next two or three months and from those interviews what we're going to design is a sensitisation or awareness raising training that we're then going to do a train the trainer model and deliver in Cambodia to start with. So we'll do that for each cohort for NGOs, law enforcement and prosecutors and the judiciary so we've got all of these different stages happening in an attempt to kind of fill these gaps and get some movement on this. Cambodia is a very interesting country it's a completely different legal system to Australia so for me it's a hybrid system so it's interesting for me but my collaborator on this fortunately speaks Khmer and he's a senior technical officer for Better Care Network which is the preeminent organisation for looking after children in out of parental care worldwide and she's very very well versed in this issue and very well versed in Cambodia so I'm very fortunate to have her I wouldn't anticipate trying to do this one by myself in Cambodia I feel very lucky and just to kind of round things out I thought I'd just show you a quick photo of one of those children that was sitting in that auditorium that we first looked at so this is Ramesh. He was quite upset when they were first doing the interviews to trace his family. Tracing families is a very complex thing to do. Many of these children have come into care when they're quite small because small children get more money, unfortunately. It's just the way it is. And so his mum had not even signed. There was an agreement in place. I think she thumbprinted an agreement with the orphanage that they would provide for his education and she would get him back when he was 15 or so. And once she kind of realised what was happening, she made the big trip down a few times to try and get him back, but the director told her she couldn't have him back unless she paid all of the money thus far for his upkeep which was put at an unreasonable price and that she'd signed a contract and that was that. So when they went to try and find his family, often for Ramesh they had a few more details, he was a little bit older and had had some contact with his mum, but often they just have a photo of the child and a vague idea of the village that they might be from and they set off there so that's them walking to find that family. Those journeys can take days. Many of these children are recruited from very remote regions to make it harder for their parents to find them. Many of the parents don't speak the same dialect as the city that they take into, so it's complicated. Down below there is the mother seeing the photo and confirming that's her child, and then you see them reunited there. 
And that process can take anywhere from a few days to months to sometimes years in some of these countries. And it doesn't end with them being reunified there. That process then takes at least three years of monitoring to make sure that that child is not going to be re-trafficked, is not going to you know, end up in a worse situation than being at home. So ultimately, I have this slide at the end just as a reminder, mostly to myself, <laughs> while you do the, the meta work that you do up here, that it has real results down here. And, and if that happened for just one child, then you know it would all be worth it. That's it, essentially. That's what I've been plugging away at and continue to work on and happy for any questions. All right, thanks very much, Kate. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.